0: if you would open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26 as we progress through the night that Jesus is betrayed and arrested really we can't help but be captivated by this story at least I hope not these events are familiar but these events are not normal these events are life changing you have the very son of God crying out to the father in the quiet of a garden saying if there is any other way father if there is any other way to accomplish this redemption then let this cut pass from me. He knows the horror of what is coming, and that is not limited to the physical suffering of the cross. It is most intimately connected to the pouring out of the wrath of the Father. And then breaking the silence, the sound of hundreds coming through the darkness with swords and clubs and torches, and the Son of Man walks obediently toward the one who will betray him with a kiss. It is almost unbelievable. But Judas thinks he has control of the situation that he's determined the time, the place, and the method of betrayal. The crowd thinks that they have control because they can certainly outnumber them with weapons. The disciples think that somehow they have to gain control of this. And if that means Peter lashing out with a sword against the servant of the high priest, then that's what he'll do. But of course Jesus corrects him because Jesus has been in control the whole time. Put the sword away, Peter, because those that live by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, if your faith is placed in violence and force, then you will eventually be overcome by it. Now, that makes sense in the context. Even if those 11 disciples left were master swordsmen, which clearly they were not, they did not have a chance against a force that size. It would have led to their death. But more than that, there's a time and a place for the use of force. There's a time and a place where God dealt with his enemies violently. There's a time and a place where you are to stand for the oppressed and the afflicted, the victims. This is not that time. There is a war being fought here. But this is not a war against the mob. This is not a war against Caesar or against Rome. This is a war for the souls of men and women. And it is not won or lost by account of swords or horses. There's a time to rise up and defend victims. Jesus is not the victim here. He reminds Peter, do you not know who I am? I could call, and in a moment, the Father would give me at my disposal legions of angels, tens of thousands of angels. Peter, if this was about force, I could summon a force so overwhelming the world has never seen anything like it. Peter, I do not need you or your sword in this moment. In the darkness, in the turmoil, in the middle of the most unjust act in human history, Christ proves that he remains in control, and more than that, this is all going exactly according to plan. We need to hear that. That God is in control, that God has not forgotten his people, that in the darkness and in the turmoil, that God will work out his perfect will exactly as he intends to. And we need to remember that because today we come to the trial of Jesus, and once again it looks for all the world like this whole thing is out of control. We're going to be reminded that even as the Son of God is led like a lamb to the slaughter, he fulfills scripture. Even as he's oppressed, afflicted, and remaining silent. If you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be in verses 57 to 68 today. I'll read 57 through 60 to set us up for where we're going. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. This is what God's word says. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Let's pray. Lord, uh, in this passage, we see injustice and It pricks our conscience. We're a people who want what's right. At least we say we want what's right. And yet the innocent will suffer. They'll be condemned. God, remind us that suffering is never out of your control. The suffering of Christ was never outside of your control. It was the plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people promised to Christ before one of us breathed our first breath. Lord, this is all under your sovereign control. But further, remind us that nothing in life is out of your control. Not then, 2,000 years ago, and certainly not now. In all the complexity and all the chaos that marks our lives sometimes, Lord, you remain in control. So quiet our hearts. Open our eyes so that we can see wonderful things from your word. Remind us of the truths, unshaken, unchanging, that anchor us in our faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I prayed, we're a people that like justice. And at some point or another, we've all been falsely accused. If you have siblings, it starts young. Because no one wants to get in trouble. And one of God's great blessings is younger siblings. Because then you can say, it wasn't me, it was them. And it just rolls on downhill until you're the youngest. And I have no experience with being the youngest. But I assume it's tough because there's no one to pass it on to. Mom doesn't believe that the dog did those things. But I don't know about you, uh, the last time that I was falsely accused of something, my natural inclination wasn't to be quiet. Uh, my natural inclination wasn't to say, that's wrong, but it's probably the way it's supposed to happen. I'm sure everything will work out just fine. Uh, I can give you an example from this week. We were up at camp, and um, someone in wisdom brought walkie-talkies for the counselors to talk to one another, and uh, messages were going across one night, and uh, somehow a camper had gotten a hold of one of the counselor's walkie-talkies. And in response to a question... The answer was a little bit snarky, we'll say. And immediately, another counselor came on the radio and said, Matt, they they implied that it was me. (laughs) And of course, right away, I said, I am sitting on my bed, preparing for Sunday's sermon, praying for your very soul. How dare you (laughs) accuse me? And it really did go something like that. (laughs) there's probably a reason they thought that the smart aleck answer was mine, but it was wrong. And in that moment, I felt the need to remind them that it was wrong. We want justice. We want people to know that we're innocent. We want people to know that it's not our fault. Sometimes even when it is our fault, but especially when we are innocent, we want people to know. We have this scene on this night. The first thing that we're going to look at is the king's trial. The trial of an innocent man. Trial held by wicked men with no intention of justice or truth. And yet, Christ knows exactly what is happening, exactly why it's happening, and exactly what the result will be. Let's open it up first and look at the king's trial. And as we come to verse 57, we're going to start to look at the procedure of the trial, how it moved along, what the, what the flow of events was. Verse 57, it says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, the gospel accounts all give us different information, not conflicting information, but complementary information that helps us build a scene here. If we were to go to John's gospel, we would know that immediately from the garden, they take him to Annas who was the former high priest. It's Caiaphas's father-in-law. He's still held in high esteem, and he does kind of this first arraignment, which gives Caiaphas, the current high priest, and the scribes and the elders a chance to gather. That's kind of where the time lapse goes, but Matthew picks up uh, where John's gospel kind of leaves off and moves us to what is the second phase of, Christ, of Christ's trial, and that leads him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas is Caiaphas' father-in-law. Caiaphas, it says, is high priest. Sometimes it says high priest. That year, the priesthood was corrupt. At this point, it was passed down, kind of a family affair, but certainly not as it was meant to be from father to oldest son along the line of Aaron. This has been corrupted long before that. Annas and Caiaphas are both wicked men. And now the scribes and the elders have gathered. And what is happening here is the preparation for a trial. Every small town, every Jewish gathering, every Jewish collection of people would have a, a group of elders and religious leaders who made decisions. They made rulings on matters of life and community and religion. And if something uh, wasn't able to be worked out on the smaller local level, it could be kicked up to the high court in Jerusalem. And something like what we see with our, high, with our Supreme Court. And this is a gathering of that council. But something's wrong with this situation. This procedure is not right. Because as we see Peter following them, he goes to the courtyard of the high priest, which means this is happening at the home of Caiaphas, and that's not the right place. This is not the right time. It's the middle of the night. Trials are supposed to happen during the day. Uh, This is happening at the high priest's house. This should have happened in the proper chambers. This would be like uh, the Supreme Court gathering at the chief justice's house in the middle of the night to decide on something before the press cycle went up the next day. In verse 58, we do see Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guard to see the end. Peter ran into the darkness, but he didn't run far, just far enough to get out of sight, and then he kind of follows the whole procession, the whole procession to the courtyard of where Caiaphas is living. And again, if you read John's gospel, he says that Peter wasn't well known in Jerusalem and So he kind of gets left out in the darkness. John has to go over to the gate and tell the servant girl to let Peter in. Uh, But Peter is now around the fire in the courtyard, able to see the proceedings that are going on inside the house. And we think maybe, just maybe for a moment, that Peter's come to his senses. uh, That he realizes that he was wrong and now he's here. And maybe there's some hope for redemption among Christ's disciples, that they'll do the right thing. Um, It doesn't take us until next week to figure out that that is not going to happen. But look at how they move forward in these proceedings. It says, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. And right away, you can see that this court has no interest in justice, no interest in actual truth, no interest in a righteous verdict here. Uh, the whole council is acting together here. At least all of those gathered at this point are acting in one mind. And these are people who, um, like lawyers do, love to fight. They would fight about anything. But they've all gathered together for a specific purpose. They're gathered together seeking false testimony. Now, that obviously sounds wrong. You're not supposed to seek false testimony. But even if they were just seeking normal testimony, that wasn't their job. Their job is to have matters brought to them so that they can evaluate the truth of the matter impartially. They can't do that if they're the ones bringing charges. Again, this would be like our Supreme Court bringing a case before the Supreme Court so that it could be decided on by the Supreme Court. You would say that's not justice. You can't do that. You can't make the case and then decide the case. There's no way for that to be fair. They're seeking false testimony against Jesus. Any testimony, even false testimony for the purpose of putting him to death. So they know the sentence, the, the end result that they want. They need the sentence to be death. So they need the verdict to be guilty. All they're missing is the crime to attach to that and the witnesses to bring it forward. And if you say that sounds backwards, then good, you're paying attention, because usually legal proceedings go the other way. A witness sees you do something, and that leads you to being charged with a crime, which means evidence is brought forward to be considered, which means a verdict is given, which means a sentence is attached to that. They have actually moved this thing in the complete opposite direction. But at this point, they run into a problem. For all of their lack of proper procedure, now they run into a very serious problem because look at the start of verse 60, but they found none. They're seeking this false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death, but they don't find any, although many false witnesses came forward. They're seeking the testimony to confirm what they want, but they can't seem to find it because they can't get all the liars to agree, which is a common problem when you try to tell a lie the same way more than once. Mark's gospel says their testimony is not consistent. If this wasn't such an absolute moral outrage, if this wasn't happening to the Son of God, it would be almost comical, wouldn't it? Bring in a pair of witnesses, because the law says you need two witnesses. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says, If there is found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord is giving you, a man or a woman, who does what is evil in the sight of your God by transgressing his covenant? And if it's told to you and you've heard it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. You investigate. And behold, if it's true and this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you bring out the man or the woman who has done this evil to your gates, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So you need multiple witnesses, and they have to agree. By this point in Israel's history, they even have a degree to which they have to agree. They have to line up very, very closely. But but what are they doing? They're bringing in witnesses. And this guy says this, and this guy says this, and when they don't agree, they move them out. Hold on a minute, we'll be back. They go and they get two more, and they bring them in. This says this, and this says this, and they can't agree. All right, go, and we'll find two more. Because in an illegal trial in the middle of the night, you apparently don't have time to prep your false witnesses. They can't let a little thing like the truth stand in their way. They won't let the problem of inconsistent testimony get in their way. Eventually, they are going to have to come up with the proof that they need. And eventually, they do find the proof that they need. Look at verse 60. They found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last, finally, two came forward. And they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, what are they talking about? most directly, you have to go all the way back to John chapter 2. This is years earlier, two years earlier, by the way, when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time. He goes in, and we know at the beginning of the Passion Week, at the beginning of the week that we're looking at here in Matthew, he cleanses the temple, clears out the buying and selling in the bazaars of Annas, ruins their their profit-making center, and restores right worship. He'd done that before at the beginning of his ministry as well. And when he does it that first time, the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us that your authority for doing these things? And in John 2.29, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It took 46 years to build this temple, and would you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from, his de- from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, The Jews assume he's speaking of the physical temple. Jesus is speaking of the temple of his body, and if you're paying attention at all, he doesn't say that he will destroy it. He implies that who will destroy it? that they will destroy the temple and that he will rebuild it in three days. In Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, he had certainly said that the temple is coming down. The immediate context has him talking to his disciples so we don't really know exactly the foundation for where these witnesses were coming from. Maybe it's a kind of a gross misrepresentation of what Jesus said in John 2. Maybe it's somebody who overheard something on the Mount of Olives and completely twisted. it. Maybe it's Judas who has told them what he's heard, and it's the best. But either way, the final charge there is that he has conspired to speak against the temple, the dwelling place of God. Whatever the source, the outcome is the same. Now they have the testimony that they were looking for. Again, that doesn't make it right. Being a witness was a serious thing. If you're a false witness, uh, first of all, if you're a witness in a capital case, you have to understand, if you're testifying and the result is going to be somebody's death, as a witness, you directly participate in that. Under the law, if you are the witness that sends somebody to death, you throw the first stone. You think that would make you sober up a little bit to know that you would take part in it? More than that, if you read further in the law, Deuteronomy 19 says that if a malicious witness, a false witness, rises up against someone to accuse them of wrongdoing, both of the men who have the dispute will stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and they will investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you will do to him just as he intended to do to his brother, and you will purge the evil from among you. I accuse you of murder falsely. What's the penalty? Whatever would have happened to me had you been convicted of murder. It's serious. But it doesn't matter to them. They have no interest in finding true testimony. The witnesses have no interest in bearing right witness, They violate the law. They speak against the son and they put the king on trial with no intention of actually finding the truth or carrying out justice. But how will Jesus respond? What what does the king say in his own defense? If this is the king's trial, what is the king's testimony then about himself? Well, for the first significant portion of the trial, they demand a response and they're met with silence. They finally find the witnesses, but all they're met with is silence. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? In this situation, he assumes once again that he is in control. Jesus now has something at least remotely specific laid against him, and the frustration is building. Understand that if it's them, they would have fought back. If this is Caiaphas under investigation, Caiaphas is yelling about his innocence here he assumes that jesus would respond the same way that he would at least defend himself and the frustration is building because they're on a timetable here your trial in the darkness is a lot easier to keep under wraps and under control than something that drags into the next day and remember the people still love jesus there are tens of thousands of people who are still very much supportive of what jesus is at the very least he can heal and make bread that makes you popular even if you don't get that he's the messiah the crowds love him And they're terrified of the crowds. They want this done and over with before the word gets out. But more than that, they're on a timetable they don't even know about. Why? Because the Messiah is going to be sacrificed on the Passover at exactly the right time and in exactly the right way. The Lamb of God will die at the right time according to the predetermined plan of God. Not according to the will of some midnight Jewish court. But in their minds, at least if Jesus begins to address the accusations, maybe he says something that will incriminate him. But what happens? But Jesus remained silent. Can you imagine how infuriating that must have been for them? Have you ever tried to have a really good argument with someone who had no interest in arguing with you? Every now and then you see this on Facebook. Somebody will post something inflammatory and somebody will give a relatively kind response. It's unusual, but they'll give this kind response. And then the person gets exactly what they want and they just fire up. And the person says, sorry, we disagree. God bless you, brother. And No, you have to respond to these things. Jesus says nothing. He's not defensive. He's not intimidated. He simply says nothing. And in one sense, he's not obligated to. Under the law, you were not required to incriminate yourself. In fact, you could not incriminate yourself. But more than that, what is he supposed to answer to? What's the charge that's been laid against him? He didn't actually say that. They're not asking him to defend against anything coherent. They had no reason to bring him in, nothing to charge him with. This would be like the prosecution calling a bunch of witnesses in, and when they don't make sense, sending them out saying, hold on, judge, we'll be right back. They bring in more and more and more, and finally they get two people that kind of agree, and then they look at the defense and say, now what do you have to say? What's the defense going to say? Thanks, we rest our case. They did it for us. Obviously, none of this makes sense. Jesus says nothing. But there's a greater reason that he says nothing here. Over and above the fact that the law says he doesn't have to, over and above the fact that the defense or that the prosecution has done nothing to prove his guilt, even in his silence, he fulfills scripture. What did he tell Peter in the garden? Peter, not only do I not need your sword, Peter, this is happening so that the scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. Peter, scripture is being fulfilled in front of your eyes tonight. And that carries on. Because Isaiah 53 that we read at the beginning of service today is talking about this night. 700 years before Caiaphas breathed his first breath. The one who assumes that he is in control of this entire situation. 700 years before he even came into existence on this earth. It was written that the lamb would go before his prosecutors. Afflicted, oppressed, but silent. Like a sheep before his shearers. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Every word fulfilled exactly as it is written. Who's in control? If you're a bystander in that room, if you're in the courtyard like Peter, straining to hear the proceedings, man, it's got to feel like Jesus is out of control here, doesn't it? Taken in by a mob that outnumbers them dozens of times to one. Rallied against by witness after witness after witness. Yelled at by the high priest over all of Israel. And it looks like Jesus has no control, but He is firmly in control. You and I have this great privilege of seeing the King in control. You and I have this unimaginable privilege of seeing how even His silence is connected to hundreds of years of God's prophetic promises. Once again, God has proven faithful as we move forward in the passage, Jesus is going to make a statement. In this collection of lies, in this utterly dishonest proceeding, the truth is going to be told. And it's Christ that's going to tell it. Because there needs to be some clarity that will finally move all of this forward. After all the silence, the high priest in his fury said to him, The second half of verse 63, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God, Jesus, with God as your witness under the strictest and most severe and most serious oath that a Jew can bring. I adjure you by the living God, answer this question, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? And if you think about it, this is the first question all night that has actually made sense. Again, Jesus is not obligated to answer it. Not obligated to incriminate himself. But this is the first question with any substance. Not where are you, not where have you been, not what have you said, not what have you done. But Jesus, who are you? Who do you actually claim to be? Now you and I could answer that question, couldn't we? Because from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, what have we been proven? That this is Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. This is what he does that fulfills Scripture. As John sends his men to him, even though John is in prison, and said, Are you the one, or should we look for another? And Jesus says, Just look at what I've done. They don't need testimony. They have the Scriptures. They have his teaching. They have the body of his life that screams out that this is exactly who he is. We have the testimony of Peter from Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Peter. You didn't come up with this on your own. My Father has revealed this to you. But this is a question that Jesus will answer. Although they have all the proof that they need, the truth is going to be told at some point in this sham legal proceeding, and Jesus says it, you've said so. Mark's gospel rule. That he says, I am. Caiaphas couldn't have said it better myself. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? I am. Not only does he give that answer, he adds to it. That, see, we think again from our human perspective Jesus, if only you'd stayed quiet. If you had stayed quiet, you might get out of this with your life. I mean, at the very least, uh, they have nothing to go on. They have no proof that you've done anything. But because he's exactly who he says he is, because God has ordained that this hour would come, because the Son will willfully submit to the plan of the Father, he answers directly. He says, you have said it, but wait, there's more. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus doesn't say yes, but let me explain, guys. He doesn't say yes, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. He doesn't say yes, but let me tell you why that's not blasphemous. He says yes, and let me clarify it just in case there's anything you don't understand about this. From now on, you will see. You men think that you are going to bring about my end. You think you are going to kill me, and they do. But you will see. What are they going to see? You're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You are going to see me in power. How do they see that? First of all, they see him resurrected. We know that He goes to the cross, but we know that that's not at the end of the story. In three days' time, these men have to deal with the reality of an empty tomb. Over the course of the coming days and weeks, they have to deal with the fact that they have an empty tomb and a hundred witnesses who have seen this risen Christ. But what else are they going to see? Jesus quotes here from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. We've read from Daniel 7 before, but Daniel 7, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Psalm 110 begins with this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. In other words, just in case you missed it, those Old Testament promises, those things that David and Daniel wrote about the coming Messiah, the Son of Man, the King with universal power and authority, they wrote them about me. This is your hour but God has given it to you. For now, the Lord will be humbled. For now, they will put him to death. But at one time, at some point in the future, the one that they now judge falsely will sit in perfect judgment over them. The one that they mock the one that they beat, the one that they condemn, will evaluate their eternal souls. And one day, every knee will bow. In the shadow of the cross, Jesus proclaims his final victory. And that answer is so clear that even Caiaphas gets it. I mean, he's ready now to pronounce the sentence. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes. Now, tearing your robes, tearing your clothes was a sign of grief. It's a sign of mourning. It's fairly common. We see it from the law in Genesis through the prophets all the way up even into the New Testament in the book of Acts. It's a sign of grief. And according to Leviticus 21, the high priest wasn't allowed to do that unless the name of God was blasphemed. And then he was expected to do it. And so in this sign of, again, false adherence to the law, even in what he does, this kind of gross theatrical display, he tears his clothes. He says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. And what's the penalty for blasphemy? According to Leviticus 24, 16, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. You've heard it yourself. What need do we have for further witnesses? Now he has spoken so clearly that it is time to call for judgment. So he says, what is your judgment? He calls for a vote right there. Now that's not how voting was done. You don't get to vote in mass. This isn't like some minor business proceeding where you just go and the eyes have it. They were supposed to vote individually. A scribe was supposed to take them one at a time. Each man was accountable for his own voice and his own vote. The youngers were supposed to vote first, so they weren't influenced by their elders and maybe the ones that they admired and looked up to. Everyone was accountable for exactly what they determined, and it's not there. What's your verdict? What's your judgment? And as one, they kind of rise up and say, he deserves death. Collectively, they want him dead. The hope and their plan from the beginning is now in motion They want to put an end to him, and now they have the verdict, and they're ready to carry out the sentence. Look what they do. Verse 67, then they spit in his face, and they struck him. To spit on someone is not just gross. It's a sign of dishonor, disrespect. It's degrading. It's meant to be humiliating. You spit on enemies. You spit as something reviles you. Mark's gospel says that they covered his eyes. They blindfolded him. They spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him. The high court of Israel now begins to beat Israel's Messiah. You get that? These men who kept themselves so pure and so clean that they wouldn't dare work on a Sabbath, these men who were so separate that they wouldn't even dream of having dialogue with a Gentile now begin to beat Israel's promised king in the home of the high priest. Prophesy to us, you Christ. If you're the Christ, let's see you prove it. Prophesy to us. Who is it that struck you? Eyes covered, surrounded by spiteful, hateful men who strike him from every direction, mocking him, saying, if you are who you say you are, surely you could do a little thing like tell us who hit you. And the tragic irony, the, the really twisted part of all of this, is that they are committing the very sin that they have condemned him to death for. Luke's Gospel says it this way. Luke twenty-two sixty-five says, They said many other things to him, blaspheming him. See, they accused him of blasphemy, of claiming to be the son of God. Make no mistake, the Jews understood that Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Not a son of God in the sense that the children of Abraham were all children of God. Not a son of God in the sense that he was just submissive to the will of God. But a son of God, meaning meaning of the same nature, stuff, divine thing that the Father was, being one with God. And if that is a false claim, then he is worthy of death. But of course, Jesus is telling the truth. The only one in this whole proceeding who is telling the truth. And as they reject him, they are committing the sin that he stands condemned for because he was the son. He was the Messiah. He was Emmanuel, God with us. But they mock the son. They condemn the king. And in their spiritual blindness, in their ignorance, in their hatred, in their hardness of heart, In their slavery to sin, they condemn the Messiah to death. So, who stands accused? See, it looks for all the world like Jesus is on trial. But what do we do with the fact that the Son of God is judged and tested by sinful men? It doesn't sound right, the idea that you should be able to put God to the test. In fact, it seems that Jesus has already said something about that back in Matthew 4. Now in some sense, God can be tested. Look, probe, examine, and what do you find? That his promises are always true. Evaluate. What do you see that history, that archaeology, that sociology, biology... All of these things only prove the value of God's word and the inherent consistency of a Christian worldview. So in some senses, test these claims and find how beautifully true they always are. But understand this. At some point, you and I need to see that God is not on trial. We are. That is, the atheist stands and shakes his fist and says there is no God unless you prove it to me God does not sit in heaven saying I hope they come up with something good boy I only hope that there's some way to convince these smart people that I exist the human heart is laid bare before God he sees, knows, and judges every thought every motivation every intention every action so the question today is not whether Christ can pass through his trial the question today is that falls to you and to me who do you say that this Jesus is because here's his claim that he is the Christ the very Son of God That he is the Messiah the promised salvation of Israel and through the Abrahamic Covenant to be the hope of all nations he claims to be the very Son of God he claims to be one with the Father this one this Jesus claims to be the one who is able to forgive sins and not only a way but he is the one who claims to be the way the truth and the life the one throughout throughout without which no one comes to the Father he claims that he has a kingdom that is coming that will be characterized by perfect justice, perfect righteousness. He claims to be the one to have the authority to stand in judgment over you and I. So what have you done with this, Jesus? Because my friends, those are questions that do not have a neutral response. A couple of things for us to think through as we walk away today. First of all, Thinking through his trial and mine, because this whole scene is unfair and uncomfortable. It's not right that the son should be led away to death. It's not right that the perfect one, the just one, should be overcome by injustice, beaten, mocked, condemned, spit on, nothing in this feels right. Not just the death, but everything that leads up to it. condemned to die in the most painful the most shameful way that this culture could come up with and even more than that knowing that the perfect Son of God is going to bear up under the wrath of God but here's the reality sin will always be put on trial that at some point God judges each and every sin there's nothing that will remain hidden nothing that will remain covered God will deal with every injustice, every rebellion, every selfish action, every shameful intention, and the wages of sin is death. So the final trial is going to come, and it's going to come before the judge who judges perfectly, not like Annas, Caiaphas, not like the Sanhedrin, not like the elders, not like the people of Israel, the one who judges perfectly. And So at some point, you and I will stand before this great and holy judge, someone must be held accountable for my rebellion, for your rebellion. And so the question is who? Did Christ suffer the mocking and the scorn that you and I deserved? Did Christ suffer the pain of death that you and I deserved? Did Christ suffer the wrath of God that you and I deserved? Or will you bear that? all eternity Christ did this and it should have been me Christ was tried Christ was punished so that the wrath of God could pass over me so that we could be clothed in his righteousness that is the beauty of the gospel that where it should have been us It was the perfect son. And that perfection and that righteousness that you and I had no claim to might be laid on us by the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. And that only happens through confession, repentance, and acknowledgement of placing our faith in Christ. Second thing, what do we do with unjust suffering? What about those times when I do suffer? And I'm not talking about the headache or the sickness or maybe even the cancer or something more drastic like that. I'm talking about the suffering that happens when it's just not fair. Lots of times I suffer and I deserve it. And now that's on tape and we'll have to deal with that. But what about those times when I don't deserve it? You ever struggle with that? What about those times when my side of the story doesn't get told? What about those times when I seem to do everything right and injustice still happens? What about those times when it simply is not fair? 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, Peter writes this, For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you would follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. How do you suffer under injustice? How do you suffer under abuse that you do not deserve? Christian, the answer, through the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, because this does not come from us, through the grace of God, this is how you suffer unjustly. You suffer like Christ did. It's not fair. Suffer like Christ. But then I don't get my way. Suffer like Christ. But then the world might think poorly of me. My peers might assume wrongly of me. Suffer like Christ, who didn't insult when he was insulted, who didn't threaten when he was threatened, but instead what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to God, Christian, when you face unjust suffering, and at some point you will Is it not better to entrust yourself to the God who never makes a mistake? We say that, we nod, but why is my first instinct to plead my own case? And when they don't believe me, to yell louder. Instead of to bend the knee and entrust myself to God, who brought me into this place and through His grace will bring me through and by His promise will use this even for my eternal good. Because what am I, ultimately, at the end of the day? A lost sheep continually straying. How much better to entrust myself to the shepherd and the guardian of my soul who will always, always do better than I could have even intended. And finally, we have to think through what responding rightly looks like. Uh, not just evaluating Christ rightly, although that is the first truth. You must deal with who Christ is. But what about for those of us who have confessed, who say, yes, Jesus spoke truly. We agree. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've confessed with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, and we experience that salvation. Uh, If that is the truth, if that is where you and I are, then we need to continually respond rightly to that confession. Because if He is Savior, that means that I am not means that I am not good because of some long list of good things that I've done whether that's nice deeds in the neighborhood or whether that's serving well at church if he's in control and if he always has been then that means even my trials my pain and my sorrows are in his plan and I can trust him if he is Lord then that means that I am continually in the process of submitting my will to his If I have evaluated the claims of this Christ and found them to be true, and found him to be the king that he says he is, then my only natural response ought to be obedience. And I mentioned this to the kids up at camp, one of the most confusing and conflicting things, one of the things that I struggle with when I go to a camp like this is you see uh, the kids and not our kids I'm not actually talking about our kids but you see uh, these kids who come up and they're raising their hands and worship and they're excited they're saying amen they stay back and they think through these things and they seem to have these great responses to the messages and, and then they go out and they do the wreck games which are kind of a train wreck anyway but and they go and they swear at each other and, and they cheat and they can't be bothered with the dress code and It's just a minor microcosm of an example that's maybe a little bit easier because it's them. But what about you and I? In what ways are you and I going to evaluate today and say, yes, Christ is Lord? We are going to confess. We are going to sing. We are going to study. We are going to gather together and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. In what ways, as I move through this week, am I going to deny that very claim? Cause otherwise, it's like I'm trying Jesus and repeatedly condemning him. Jesus, uh, you are Lord, but not in this. Jesus, you are Lord, but not when I really want to do this. Jesus, you are good and you are master, but you're not in control of this area. God is not on trial. But test and see that the Lord is good. See that he's always proven faithful. And how good and sweet it is that the king that you and I repeatedly condemn ultimately offers to come back. And in repentance, we find grace. Uh, even though our sins, if we're honest, at sometimes even feel more vile than this Caiaphas. For those that He calls His own, He calls us back every time. With a grace that overcomes our filth. A mercy that overcomes our rebellion. And a love that draws us to Himself and holds us for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we looked on you and we evaluate you as despised rejected but by your stripes we're healed all of us like sheep continually going astray even after we've heard the voice of the shepherd lord we are so prone so quick to wander and yet your goodness brings us back you are the great shepherd and the guardian of our souls you lead us in ways of peace and safety. You lead us through the valley where death and the shadows of darkness creep in. Lord, you are good. Remind us over and over again that you are never out of control. No matter how life spirals, no matter how we fall, those of us who find our hope and our faith placed in you have an anchor that does not let go in the storm. What an amazing thing it is to be called a child of God. Lord, if there are those here or those listening or watching who do not know you, who have not found that peace, Lord, I pray that the truth would set them free, that the Spirit would convict, would break their hearts and drive them to repentance, so that they might ultimately find hope and salvation in you. And Lord, turn our eyes to the time when the King is coming again when you call us to your side and we will be with you in joy forever when we will participate in that kingdom of peace and truth and righteousness god help us to long for that day and put your gospel in our mouths so that everywhere we go we cannot help but speak of this hope whether we're blessed or whether we're cursed whether we're encouraged or whether we're reviled and mocked by men let the gospel of jesus christ be our consistent testimony we love you and you are good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.